Hello, everyone that is joining us. Welcome to our 19th installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. And welcome back to everybody who attended live yesterday for the 18th installment. Um, we are going to be talking today about improving the diagnostic yield in pediatric genetics. So I am joined by pediatric genetics experts. So thank you for tuning in to the webinar. I know everybody's going to be filtering in these next couple minutes. Um, so in that time, I'd like to give you an overview of what we're going to be um, talking about today and looking at the timing of everything. Um, so the first part is going to be me interviewing our lovely panelists here. And at the end, we're gonna answer your questions. So any questions that you have throughout the webinar, please use the Q&A box and submit those. Um, we're gonna make sure that we're answering as many as we can before the webinar ends at about an hour and 15 minutes from now. So depending on what time zone you're in there. Um, so definitely any questions you have, please submit those because we really love to um, make sure we're prioritizing your questions. And the Phenotip Speaker Series is sponsored by Phenotips. Phenotips offers a complete solution for medical genetics. They provide software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow, offering tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype ontology capture, and diagnostic insights. We've all experienced struggles with electronic health records. Most of them are not built for genetics. And Phenotips fills in this gap by providing a unified and seamless genetics workflow. And the speaker series here was started with the beginning of the pandemic. So we're keeping this going just as a way for us as genetic experts to continue to collaborate and learn from each other, um, especially coming from uh, different countries. Um, so I'm your host, I'm Kira Deneen. I'm also the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast. We were happy enough to win the best podcast award uh, for best science and medicine podcast over the last two years. In the last 10 years, we've produced 175 episodes that are very similar um, to the conversation we're having today, just talking about genetics. Um, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you will also enjoy DNA today. I'm also a certified genetic counselor practicing in the prenatal space. Um, so I would love to hear now to have our panelists introduce themselves. Um, Dr. Pena, do you want to start by introducing yourself? My name is Lauren Pena, and I'm a clinical geneticist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, in a past position, I was one of the investigators for the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, and currently I run a post-exome clinic um, at our hospital trying to um, uh, provide diagnoses uh, to our patients. Fantastic. Thank you. Dr. Larson? My name is Austin Larson. I'm a clinical geneticist, biochemical geneticist. Uh, I work at Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm on the faculty at University of Colorado School of Medicine. Uh, <clears throat> I'm involved in clinical trials for rare diseases, um, as well as uh, consortiums focused on mitochondrial disease and disorders of glycosylation. And I run the uh, uh, medical genetics residency program here as well. Very cool. And Dr. Pritchard, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I am Dr. Amanda Barone Pritchard. Um, usually I have a bit more of a voice than this, but I have a kiddo in daycare, uh, but I'm a pediatric geneticist, a medical biochemical geneticist at the University of Michigan Health. I'm also involved in our training programs as an associate program director and clinical trials. So certainly some overlap with Dr. Larson as well. Fantastic. So I wanted to open up our conversation by starting with 
some of the current challenges in the current diagnostic journeys to identify these. And hopefully during our conversation, we can talk about the future and how we're going to be overcoming some of these hurdles. Um, and if you guys have something to say, feel free to raise your hand with the feature on Zoom. So I know kind of who to call on, um, but you can also just unmute yourself and, and start talking. Um, anybody want to start us out with identifying some of the challenges with the current diagnostic journeys? Sure, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. Um, you know, I think there are, there are several and many challenges on diagnostic journeys. I think one of the first is there has to be recognition by a patient's care provider that genetics needs to be involved or that there might be something genetic going on. So first you have to have, uh, you know, an astute clinician say, wow, this might be genetic, you know, what should I do next? Um, and then, you know, once you have that realization, I think another challenge is access. There just aren't enough of us. There aren't enough of us across the country uh, and wait times can be long to get an appointment with genetics, which can be a barrier. So those are just a couple of things that can be a challenge on a diagnostic journey, especially when there's a possibility of a genetic diagnosis. And then picking up on that thread, what I would say is once the patient is in the clinic, I find that a big hurdle is insurance coverage for such an expensive test. And so um, whether it is um, specifically excluded from their policy or included, uh, there's a number of obstacles that the families and the providers and the institution need to jump through before we can actually have the test going. Maybe I'll try to add one more new thought to um, both of those ideas. So I think a, another, uh, another thing that I see sometimes is the idea of a categorical diagnosis versus an etiological diagnosis. So uh, in some specialties, there's a, uh, a tendency to uh, categorize patients and then consider them to be sufficiently diagnosed once they've been categorized with some specificity without then taking the next step and saying, okay, what's the etiology of this disease? And as that etiological diagnosis has more and more implications for treatment and management, becomes more and more important to take that last step to an etiological diagnosis. So just so I'm understanding this right, so would an example of this be someone has a mitochondrial disorder, but actually figuring out what gene would be like the next step to be able to figure out like, oh, maybe they're eligible for this clinical trial or more information. Am I getting that right, Dr. Larson? Exactly, yeah. Or, you know, and, and I see this more, I'm a pediatrician, so I, I see this more in adult medicine where there are patients who have been categorized with extreme specificity, you know, a certain type of dilated cardiomyopathy and it's involving this wall and it, you know, has this time course and stuff. But um, there are patients that I've seen who've had a lot of, diagnostic studies where the, the diagnostic study doesn't actually get at the etiology of the disease, which is really what we're talking about today. Yeah, so certainly a, a lot opens the door once we have a specific genetic diagnosis, as opposed to, you know, those larger um, kind of umbrella terms for categories for conditions. I think that's a really astute point. Are like, what are the latest technological advances in the field that are making it maybe faster to end the diagnostic journey. Um, you know, certainly I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of whole genome, whole, whole exome. Um, 
you know, can certainly speak to that. Is there anything else um, on your radar in terms of the newest technology in the space? Well, not so much technology, but maybe um, throughput and efficiencies. Um, and so I think time and again, we've seen in the published literature that um, severe presentations, early presentations are probably the most amenable categories of the C, so to speak, for exome or genome sequencing. And so rapid turnaround times are becoming particularly relevant for the patients, for the neonates, and particularly the one, the neonates in the neonatal ICU. So I think efficiencies um, uh, have become pretty relevant. That I think also has sort of um, carried over to what I would think of non, um, emergent diagnoses, because I think that colleagues um, will start to expect that um, a quick two-week diagnosis is important for everybody. And so then the, it becomes a problem of scalability, essentially. Yeah, so I, I would agree with everything that Dr. Pena said that um, the Availability of whole genome sequencing on timeframes that are relevant for a single inpatient admission has been a big change in the way that all of the other specialties at the hospital consider the role of genetics. So um, we've certainly seen that over the last three or four years as we've rolled out uh, rapid whole genome sequencing for, for inpatients here where I work is that more and more people have an expectation that that's part of the evaluation for, for certain categories of patients. Um, so there's a long ways to go in uh, making that technology accessible and available for you know, all of the patients that would benefit from it. Um, to your earlier question, you know, we, we've had a, a huge uh, increase in our ability to diagnose patients with sequence variation within the coding region of genes, um, but we also know that there are patients that have genetic diagnoses that don't have that specific genetic mechanism. So those harder to parse genetic mechanisms are something that we're all working on with uh, both the ability to interpret non-coding variation from short read whole genomes, also long read whole genome sequencing, optical genome mapping, RNA sequencing, um, you know, we know that there's a, a, a number of new technologies coming down the road that are each going to contribute some amount of diagnostic yield on top of what we already have. But we've certainly had an amazing increase over the last, you know, five or 10 years in terms of our ability to, to identify genetic diagnoses for our patients. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Anything to add to that, Dr. Pritchard? I don't have a ton to add. I think, you know, a couple of other things I'm interested to see in the coming years are the applications of clinical informatics and machine learning and genetics with the disclosure that I'm not an expert in those, but I think we're going to need more and more colleagues that are experts in those fields to help us navigate the amount of data we're going to get, the amount of data that's already in the EHR that we're not, you know, leveraging as much as we could to try and make more diagnoses. Yeah. And I think, the point to doing rapid whole 
genome sequencing is really remarkable. And it seems like that's where we're headed in terms of the future for certain babies, you know, certainly in the NICU, um, the turnaround time seems to be very fast. I think, you know, I was reading some articles on LinkedIn yesterday. I saw um, Dr. Ewan Ashley, I think has a world record for five hours and eight minutes, something like that. Um, so what do we need to do in order for more babies to be eligible for this? I mean, not every hospital is offering this, I'm assuming. Um, what do we need to do in order for this to be more accessible? I think that um, working with, uh, I think that health insurance is a big obstacle and coverage is a big obstacle. And so some of the um, uh, entities that offer rapid genome sequencing are um, helping us understand the obstacles to actual um, commercialization essentially of um, this rapid turnaround technology. Um, so I think one piece would be to demonstrate um, efficacy. Um, and I believe that there is um, a push at the federal level for um, coverage of this technology. I'm not sure that rapid is in there, but at least coverage for um, uh, comprehensive genomic testing for neonates is in the works amongst our legislatures. I think that the other piece is awareness of the, the diagnostic yield is in many ways tied to the phenotype that's offered. And so um, what I see among colleagues is that unfrequently um, there is some disappointment when the um, testing is negative, but I think that one has to be pretty careful um, about the phenotype. Um, and that comes with a whole number of caveats too, because with so much phenotypic variability, we're not quite sure of um, what the diagnostic yield is gonna be. But I think if we're just mindful that if we um, expect a better yield for um, a, a patient with birth defects and just very clear objective findings, then that might be a safer bet that um, for other phenotypes that are not quite as clear cut from the genetics point of view. Anything else to add on to that? No, I'll just, I mean, I'll echo that point that um, in terms of the availability and accessibility of these tests, you know, we um, really need to develop the evidence base for what the use cases are and what the downstream impact is of uh, using these tests, identifying diagnoses, acting on those etiological diagnoses. But a harder thing to capture uh, is the impact of negative testing, which in some cases is equally as important. So uh, I believe that there is value in using these tests in scenarios where we expect a low diagnostic yield. Um, and it's okay to use the tests in that scenario as long as you have a plan going forward for okay, if we do this test and it's negative, which is what we expect, then, you know, we're going to pursue autoimmune testing or, you know, exploratory surgery with a biopsy or what, you know, whatever the next step is, having the, the genetic testing um, that is sensitive enough to say there's actual negative predictive value for the absence of disease because this test is now sensitive enough and having 
getting that negative result then allows us to take next steps in a different direction. Yeah. Being able to rule out certain conditions so that it's like, all right, well, that makes our uh, differential diagnoses list much shorter and being able to pursue further testing. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Are there certain newborns that should be eligible or higher on the list to have the, like, not everyone's going to need a rapid whole genome sequencing because that's what we've been focused on, but also some babies may benefit from just a whole genome sequencing. How do we identify in the NICU a baby that really would benefit from the rapid whole genome sequencing? I think that's when it becomes even clearer that a partnership with a geneticist is really, really important because when we say birth defects, the categories are quite different. And so, for example, somebody with non-syndromic myelomeningocele, you know, I think a general genetics opinion would be that um, comprehensive genomic testing is not indicated in those cases, but other types of birth defects might benefit from that. And so, um, and I think anybody with the uh, suspicion of a metabolic disorder should have um, rapid turnaround genome sequencing. And so I think that's where the genetics, um, a geneticist would be really helpful, even though that's kind of a slippery slope, because I think one of the first things that, that we talked about is how rare a geneticist can be out in the field. In this ideal world, you pull in a geneticist, yeah. Yeah, but then, you know, you can use telehealth, and, you know, there might be some scenarios in which having um, rapid turnaround um, of genomic testing, even without a geneticist, if we can have, if we can phone a friend with results, then that could be helpful for that patient. Yeah, I mean, I think there's really a tension there because um, the earlier you get an etiological diagnosis, the more likely you are in a window for optimal treatment. The longer you wait, the clearer the phenotype is and the more certainty you have about your clinical scenario and exactly what the role of testing is going to be. But by the time the phenotype declares itself and becomes very specific and obvious, you may have then missed the window for intervention. So there's an inherent tension between those two pieces and uh, to Dr. Pena's point, that's, that's really the role of a geneticist, which has changed a lot over the last five or 10 years, but to help the, the NICU team or other teams navigate that scenario. How long do we want to wait to get some more phenotypic certainty versus how, uh, how likely is it that we may find something that has a time-sensitive intervention? And we know that if we use this test in non-specific scenarios, we're gonna have some big swings and misses. We're gonna send the test on patients that have sepsis and you know patients that have things that absolutely are not genetic, but at least we had the test started and you know we got a result, uh, we got that negative result, but had it been a positive result for a time sensitive diagnosis, then you know we had to, <laughs> we had to to kind of plan in advance for that scenario. And Dr. Pritchard, I think you wanted to chime in as well. Yeah, I think I had pretty similar points. I mean, you know, hindsight's always 2020. So when we're waiting for that phenotype to evolve, we're losing time um, on testing that could already be in process. So I think 
many often we're all leaning towards sending testing earlier because when you have a, a sick neonate, you know, every day counts in terms of making management decisions and helping the family through that process. So, you know, what would be ideal would be if we had easy access and enough people to send the test where we didn't worry too much and just said, yeah, let's just send the test. Let's not even stress about, you know, day one of life versus day 14 um, or an easier way to add that phenotypic information. Certainly we do sometimes go back to a lab that just did a rapid genome and say, hey, you know, this clinical picture just evolved and now there's X, Y, and Z. Can you guys just look at the data again and see if there's any other genes of interest? Yeah, that's a really good point that it's not, it's a dynamic process. You're not necessarily getting the data and saying, okay, nothing there. It's like, oh, well now on day four, we have this new symptom. Let's go back to the data analytics team and say, this is the new symptom. Are there other genes we should be focusing on possibly for variant of uncertain significance that maybe we're saying, okay, well now it's looking like maybe that's pathogenic. Um, I think that's a really good point too, that, you know, we think of genetic testing as you do it once you're done, but not always the case. And especially nowadays where we're learning more about variants and interpreting those variants, um, your genetics aren't changing, but our understanding is very much changing even in, in real time with, um, a, a patient symptoms that are coming up. Um, you know, we've been focused on the whole genome sequencing, the rapid whole genome sequencing, but taking a step back in terms of looking at newborn screening, that you know, virtually all babies have, certainly in the US, I can't speak to other countries. Um, how do we see this changing? Newborn screening has certainly, we started with PKU, what, 50, 60 years ago, and now we've had more and more conditions being added to the panels, which is state dependent in the US. Do we see this changing to maybe being whole exome sequencing or much larger panels that are more reflective of expanded carrier screening? Um, certainly a question that I like asking a lot of people that have come on our phenotype speaker series because everybody has different thoughts and opinions on how this is going to change in the future. Um, anybody want to start us out with just your thoughts on how that's going to shift? Dr. Larson, you're, you're nodding. You have thoughts. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So there, there are absolutely diseases that meet all of the criteria for newborn screening, other than the fact that they don't have a stable metabolite in a blood spot for which there's a, an easily available test. So, you know, I think there's no question at a conceptual level that uh, there will be a role for genotyping or genetic testing as part of newborn screening in order to identify uh, diseases that, that have a time-sensitive intervention in a pre-symptomatic state. Um, the, the devil really is in the details, right? So more, certain diseases are more amenable to that, uh, to a genetic approach to population-based testing than other diseases. So the one that comes to mind for me is hereditary fructose intolerance, where the vast majority of individuals that have that disease have a couple of very clearly defined known pathogenic variants. There's a very um, easy intervention. It can be life-changing. It's a hard disease to diagnose clinically. Like that one really stands out to me as, as being very amenable to uh, genetic testing as newborn screening. And you know, from there, there are hundreds of diseases that uh, that that you know, would, would be nice diseases to test for 
but you get added degrees of difficulty uh, as the genetic landscape of those diseases gets more and more uh, complex. Every time I think about this, I think about variants of uncertain significance. Like I know we're headed there, right? Like we are, I'm sure we're going to head towards either Wes or our genome, you know, as, as kind of a starting base for newborn screening. But gosh, I wish we had a way to better understand, uh, you know, the full normal variation to limit VUSs. Um, I think as a result, at least now, you know, some of our biochemical testing won't go away because even if we switch to, you know, sequencing the genes for fatty acid oxidation defects, if we find several buses, we're still going to want to send that ESL carnitine profile to see, you know, where we think a patient's going to fall. Um, but, you know, we are already using, in some ways, many states are already using genetic testing on newborn screening, whether it's for cystic fibrosis, uh, SMA, or uh, second-tier testing for certain metabolic disorders. I think they're, they're going to be complementary at the end of the day for all the reasons that were stated, but I just think on a practical level, I could get rapid exome or sequence or genome sequencing and I can have two variants in the PAH gene and I still need that phenylalanine level to set the targets for treatment. And so I just, you know, I, I think that there's pros and cons to all, to both modalities. Yeah, I think that's a good point in that they're all tools in our toolbox and, you know, not every one tool is going to solve every issue. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's a good point that we're, you know, using all of this and saying, okay, how are we moving forward? Because, you know, we can't do a whole genome on every baby for newborn screening. We're not at that point yet. You know, financially, that's just not going to fly. Um, but can certainly see as we're saying maybe like panels is what you guys have kind of been hinting towards of, okay, let's do more maybe genotyping, not sequencing, but just looking at those hot spots on the gene. Um, like you were mentioning for, what was it, Dr. Larson, hereditary fructose intolerance? Yeah, um, that that's a really good example. Cause that, as you said, is really hard to diagnose clinically, but it's like, all right, well, let's look at those most common genetic changes that are causing the disorder. And from a prenatal perspective, it's like, I'm seeing, you know, the parents before the baby's born and, and you guys are more involved as we see more people doing carrier screening, where we're looking at, you know, some of the, um, it really ranges. Some providers are ordering, you know, the main three cystic fibrosis, fragile X, um, SMA, and some providers are ordering 500 condition panels with this. If people have, if we're kind of morphing more towards the expanded carrier screening of hundreds of conditions, is that ever going to say, okay, well, if this much of the population is doing carrier screening, is newborn screening still needed at that point? Which I think I know the answer is yes, but I will there be anything that you think will change in terms of carrier screening just being way more prevalent? I think that um, when we start to talk about massive sequencing of a big segment of the population, inevitably we're gonna run into more and more variants of uncertain significance just on the fact that we're sequencing people who are underrepresented in the reference databases. And in addition to that, I just think that carrier screening um, is not widely available to every segment of the population. So I think what we're seeing right now is a pretty skewed um, sampling, but if we start to move into population-based 
massive uh, sequencing or panels, carrier screening, we are probably going to have to expand efforts to represent um, everybody in the United States in the reference databases, because otherwise we're going to just be um, having the U.S.'s left and right. Yeah, that's a really good point, Dr. Pena, and that I think one of the recent, like the All of Us project I saw recently, I don't know if it was this week or last week, um, say that they're the portion of the sequencing that they're looking at in terms of the patient population, over 50% identifies as a minority in terms of ethnicity. So hopefully projects like All of Us and, and the other projects that are happening are going to help that, but I, I wish progress was moving much quicker in terms of the U.S. is especially for people of non-European ancestry. Um, I think that's a really good point. And it affects every area of genetics. It's not just, you know, newborn, pediatric, all that. It's, it's every area. Um, Dr. Larson, did you have something to say? Well, I was going to say that is for some genes that is a tractable problem, right? So there are functional uh, readouts of the impact of mutations on proteins. And for certain high priority genes, we can do saturation mutagenesis and just go all the way through, you know, look at every single possible mutation in a gene uh, and identify the functional consequences of that. So, um, you know, right now that seems like a big lift for a lot of genes, but over time, like everything else that we're talking about, that will become more and more attainable as, as one solution. I think the other thing to, to think about as, we're, as we've been talking now about newborn screening and um, carrier testing is, uh, you know, some of the recent publications showing and our, you know, the experience that we've all had with uh, the apparent change in natural history of diseases as we start testing broadly and moving from a diagnostic testing paradigm to a screening paradigm is that the penetration of a, uh, the penetrance of a lot of these diseases is far lower than we think it is, and the expressivity is far broader in terms of the, the manifestations of these diseases. So uh, I think as we move to more carrier testing, potentially newborn screening for new diseases, we have to, to all be aware that we need to be very open to the idea that uh, the natural history of these diseases is actually very different from what we think it is with our current ascertainment. Yeah, that's that's a really good observation because we're starting to see, as Dr. Larson is saying here, that people are genetically diagnosed with a condition, but maybe they are asymptomatic, they have no symptoms, or it's very mild. And so we're learning more because back in the day, we only did testing on people we think have the condition and then we get confirmation, but we're not just testing people that don't have any symptoms. Um, so we are learning a lot more about that. Um, Dr. Pritchard, anything else to add on that point? I mean, I would echo that. I think sometimes we're finding, I'm sure we all have examples of patients who had carrier screening who then were found to have a diagnosis, right? Like they, it was just run-of-the-mill carrier screening, but they have late onset Pompeii and nobody was expecting that. Um, so I think we're going to find a lot more situations like that. And just like you said, really the variability in these conditions that we're just learning about. Yeah, I think it's it's good to note that carrier screening is screening and we're only you know able to identify so much. 
um, and everything is improving over time. Um, so kind of focus more on the treatment side as we've been talking about, okay, the screening, the diagnostic testing. If we do find there is a pathogenic variant or we're figuring out, okay, this variant must be pathogenic causing the disease in this baby, in this child, how often are we able to provide a tailored treatment based on that? Is it more just, okay, this is good for moving forward as medicine advances? How often do you have a result where you say, okay, we have a mutation in this gene. Now I can offer this treatment. Is that still more in the dream world? Like what percent of patients would you guys say um, you're able to offer a tailored treatment based on genetic results? I would estimate 10% or less, but it seems to be accelerating. And I really think that um, the rate limiting step these days into devising a treatment um, from whatever modality is truly understanding the natural history of the disorder. And so um, we can uh, tie new genes to phenotypes. We can diagnose people pretty quickly. Um, we can resolve VUSs um, fairly reliably. Um, pharmaceutical companies are pretty interested in developing new treatments. And in fact, the, um, the a 2017 FDA report um, shows very clearly that orphan disorders are the are, is a rapidly um, growing area of um, approvals. But the problem is that we can have a treatment and we can have a pretty large cohort in many ways, thanks to social media and families coalescing pretty quickly over social media. But then we don't have a natural history study and that really um, hinders our ability to set um, endpoints for a clinical trial, for example. And to, to jump off that, I think one thing that we try to do in our pretest counseling is warn families that if we get a genetic diagnosis, there may not be like a medication, there may not be a pill, there may not be a drug, but often we are able to adjust, you know, maybe our general plan of care, like, okay, we should involve these other specialists, or we should do more imaging or detailed phenotyping, but we wish we had more, you know, medications, but I think now is the time. It's, if you get a genetic diagnosis, there is hope, just like Dr. Pena was saying, that there is a lot of research into specific you know, disease targeted therapies. And to get one of those therapies, first you have to know what the disease is and what the etiology is and what gene is causing it. Yeah, so I'll echo um, what, what both of y'all said. Um, it, it's certainly a minority of cases uh, in which we identify a genetic diagnosis that there's a, a specific mechanistic treatment that targets the etiology of disease. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things that I'll, I'll mention. So, you know, a lot of the diagnoses that we make, the critical period for when the phenotype occurred was in the prenatal period. So, you know, we see the patient after birth, we test them, but you know the mutation was in a transcription factor that was most relevant at you know ten weeks gestation. So that that's kind of one scenario. Um, there's a, a a different scenario though. You know I think there are diseases that have kind of multiple phases, and as we move genetic etiological diagnoses earlier in life, um, we may be 
getting into the period in the natural history of the disease where the primary mechanism is relevant. And I think a lot of us, you know, when we identify these diseases later in life, most of what we're seeing is a, a secondary phenotype that's not actually kind of mechanistically related to the etiology of the disease. Um, so an example for me is a condition called methionine synthase deficiency, which is a metabolic disorder. Uh, there's sort of a debate in the literature about whether this is treatable or not. Um, we had a, a patient who was identified at a couple days of life and, and started treatment and had a dramatically different natural history um, than, than what's published. And even the family history that led to the testing for this patient uh, was very, very different given that the treatment was started so early in life. So, you know, for me, that's an example of the scenario when there's sometimes a window of opportunity. If we really understand the natural history of these diseases, there's a window of time when the primary mechanism is relevant. And sometimes later on, we have a, a skewed idea of the natural history of the efficacy of treatment because it's actually secondary phenotypes, not, not primary phenotypes that are occurring. Um, one other thing that I'll mention is that um, there's a, a whole other kind of paradigm to think about, which is treating genetic mechanisms as opposed to treating the downstream consequences of a specific genetic mechanism. So like that methionine synthase, scenario, you know, we use B12 and betaine uh, to treat the downstream consequences of, of genetic mutations. But there are a few scenarios now where we can actually treat the genetic mechanism. Um, so those that includes like splice altering antisense oligonucleotides. Um, and there are, you know, some some high profile examples of diseases now where we can treat at the level of the genetic mechanism as opposed to the level of the, the downstream consequences of that. Which I imagine in those situations, it's going to be um, better if you can treat at the source rather than downstream. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think it depends on the disease, uh, but that's at least a, a new paradigm and a different avenue to approach this question of which diseases are treatable. Yeah, certainly. And I popped into the chat, but just wanted to remind people that are listening and watching live, um, feel free to put your questions into the Q&A box on Zoom here. Um, we'd love to be able to answer your specific questions that you have. Um, so feel free to pop them in there. I also wanted to explore some of the more common um, indications that kids may be coming to see you for. Um, so one of the most common is autism. So a lot of kids are being diagnosed with autism and sometimes we can find a genetic cause for that. What is the typical workup for a child that has autism? Where do you start? I mean, there are guidelines that have been published by our professional organizations for autism and developmental delay. I think that um, historically, your initial testing would be microarray and fragile X testing, but I think with the um, newer single gene causes that we're seeing um, and just historical experience um, that has generated some debate. So for example, many of us who have been in the trenches for 
um, over 10 years are still looking for that fragile X that's supposed to be super duper um, common and we haven't found them. And so we're all thinking, you know, maybe fragile X should be the last test that I send and I should think about a microarray and a panel of genes. And if that doesn't give me a diagnosis, then we'll go to fragile X unless there's a family history. So, so I think that the field is evolving and um, we would do well with just continuing to apply our experience to how we um, uh, approach the evaluations just based on our experience and not necessarily the professional societies. Yeah, I'll say, you know, for me, the, the years of experience of, of uh, doing diagnostic evaluations for autism and developmental delay, for me, the, the process has flipped exactly in the way that Dr. Pena was saying, which is that, you know, for me, it seems like I should be doing the highest yield test first. So uh, for me, that's a, either a, a large panel that includes several thousand genes that have been associated with neurodevelopmental differences. Um, and uh, importantly, doing that uh, in a way that includes copy number variant analysis so, you know, I can get almost all of the yield of a microarray plus a lot more yield of, of sequencing in a single test. Seems to me to make sense to do that as the first line test. And then if that's non-diagnostic and I continue to have concerns, move on to things like Fragile X as a, a second tier or a third tier test, which is the kind of the, the opposite of the uh, old recommendations. Yeah, I think um, for these reasons, I think, autism and developmental delay, you know, would be great for a whole genome if we had better access on the outpatient side. I don't have outpatient access to genome. Insurance doesn't cover it where I am. Um, but, uh, you know, that would probably be the, the most expedient route to a diagnosis. The other piece that I wanted to point out is, um, I believe there was a European group that published um, some um, data to remind us that metabolic testing is also relevant in these cases and then paying attention to um, growth uh, parameters is really important too. So we frequently forget metabolic testing as well, but it's, that's one piece that is rarely available. And I would say that it's a lot easier these days to send enzyme testing or um, biochemical analytes and even single gene testing. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and that Dr. Pritchard also pointed out that kind of similar approach to like global developmental delay too, because that is, I imagine to be another common indication that you all are seeing um, in the clinic. Um, on the patient experience side, I think that's something that, you know, really deserves some of our attention during this conversation. And and that it can be very difficult to be a patient in this situation and a caregiver of someone that you know, has an undiagnosed disease. Is there anything that you want to see the field doing differently in terms of approaching that patient experience and making that, you know, overall better? Um, I think that it's easy for, uh, for me to forget that um, there's a lot of anxiety tied to a genetics evaluation and just um, having very frank conversations um, about the expected yield and um, potential downstream effects of a result are really important. But I think just as important too is refining expectations whenever um, 
we, um, our opinion might be that genomic testing is not indicated based on the presentation because that can be just as upsetting as um, families who we think um, should have uh, genomic testing. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point in that sometimes genetic testing, you know, we've, we've talked about how it can possibly help with treatment, but I think one aspect that I don't think we've covered yet is that it also could help if, you know, those parents are looking to have another biological child and saying, okay, well, what's the chance of this happening again? Um, I think in terms of the patient experience side, that could, that could be helpful. Dr. Larson. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, a number of things have changed in terms of patient experience. Um, so it seems like a really small thing, but uh, buckle swab testing as opposed to phlebotomy, like that, in my experience, that has really uh, improved the experience for, for a lot of patients and families. Um, the fact that we can uh, do sample collection remotely um, for people who may have traveled great distances uh, and um, so, so that's really, you know, a positive. I think, um, you know, the other thing is is that the financial impact on patients is changing for the better with time. Um, there certainly are scenarios where uh, it's, you know, a significant or even unattainable um, financial uh, impact on on a patient to to do broad genetic testing, but those circumstances are getting rarer. That used to be kind of the rule, and now it's it's less and less common uh, to be in that scenario. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's important for us as providers to be aware of, um, you know, the circumstance that we're putting families in. Uh, if we say, you know, here's, here's a test, I think this is gonna have a 10% diagnostic yield. Um, you know, we'll we'll figure out the out-of-pocket costs for you, and and families will say, no, 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 cost is no issue. Like, you know, we have to do everything that we can, and you know, that's not always true, right? Like that that is something that we need to be really aware of and um, uh, cognizant of the the financial impact on families of of genetic testing. Yeah, that can be certainly a huge part, Dr. Pritchard. I think, you know, one other way that patient experience has hopefully changed for the better with the pandemic is that I think all of us are probably doing more telemedicine and virtual care than we were a few years ago. And for many people that has improved access for people in rural areas, people that used to drive five hours to an appointment in that in combination with, like Dr. Larson mentioned, buckle swab, remote sample collection has changed the way we practice, but I think for the better in terms of families getting the care they need. And speaking to families that are traveling a long distance, um, some clinics have days that are focused on specific disorders. So a day that it's, okay, all kids that have Williams syndrome come in that day because they bring in specialists for Williams syndrome. And then parents aren't appointment here, appointment there. Everything is, is as centralized as possible. Um, do you expect more of these to be developed? Because I can certainly see a lot of benefits from this in terms of the physicians and other healthcare providers being able to collaborate with each other too, of having those days, you know, at the end of the day, reviewing all the cases, anything that needs to be done. Um, do you see this becoming more popular? Are there different hurdles we need to work through in order for these to be more accessible and happening? I think... 
I'll say I think these clinics are multidisciplinary clinics are great for patients. I think they are very popular. I'm sure many of us participate in them to some extent. I do, I do one with some of my colleagues in ophthalmology, which has just been amazing because I can't do a dilated eye exam like they can to really get that phenotype, right? Um, I think the biggest challenge or setback is again, the providers, uh, you know, we all need more time in the day or more days in the week to had to be able to do more and more multidisciplinary clinics. But I think they are a real amazing thing when we can make it happen. I think those are also huge sources of um, clinical and scientific knowledge too, just by virtue of um, following a larger cohort of patients where you can see the phenotypic variability of the disorder. The other piece that I wanted to say is that genetics has become a huge, a hugely growing field now. And I think it's becoming harder and harder to be a good all-purpose geneticist in the way that we were trained years ago, I think it's just impossible. And so I think many of us are trying to um, manage the information overload by just becoming specialists and even super specialists too. Um, I, Kira, I, I can't do prenatal genetics. I mean, I left off when we were doing the quad screen. And now when I tell the counseling students that I left off at quad screen, they're like, what is that? So it's I, we learn about forward. it a little bit, you know, I graduated 2020, so I'm sure now they're brushing over it, but yeah, it's just, it changes so fast. I think that's such a good point, Dr. Pena, and just that there's so much for us all to know that we, we just can't. So being able to specialize, I think, as you said, is, is really helpful. It is. Yeah. And, and to, to kind of make explicit a little bit of what was implicit in those discussions. So there's incredible value in us being able to specialize and develop intuitive expertise in a, a narrow area to be able to pick up on the nuance of like, oh, this patient probably also has a second diagnosis and we need to, you know, we need to think about, you know, other things for this patient as opposed to the typical patient with a particular diagnosis. But if we all get so specialized that we can't cross cover with each other, then uh, you know, the inpatient call service becomes very problematic and uh, people leaving the institution becomes problematic. So, you know, there, there's a balance to be struck there between some amount of ability to, to broadly uh, practice in genetics, but also the ability to, to develop subject matter specific expertise in a few areas. Yeah, because I think we're going to even see more people having just preventative um, you know, like whole exome, whole genome, just because maybe someone has the finances to be able to do that. And then like, who do they save? It's not necessarily a specialist. Like, so I, th I think in terms of that side too, we're going to need, um, a lot more to be able to dance in both areas. Um, Dr. Pritchard, what did you have to add? It actually, um, it just left me what I was going <laughs> to, maybe it will come back to you. Um, so I also wanted to touch base with EMRs. So with EMRs, they've come a long, long way. Um, what aspects would you want to see incorporated into EMRs that you've worked with in terms of the genetic side? Because I know when I work with EMRs, I'm like, okay, how am I finagling this to work for genetics? Because it's not set up for this. Um, what's on like your wish list for like a perfect EMR? <laughs> Dr. Larson, you were quick with that. You're like, what's on the wish list? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... One, one big thing is the ability to store genetic data as discrete 
data. Um, so uh, unlike a lot of other lab tests, most of the time a genetic result is like a scanned PDF and it gets missed in the system. We also uh, eliminate all of the complexity and all of the nuance of the, of the test results. And you know, we just have a report. We don't have the actual information in the EMR. So you, you lose the, the ability to take the really rich phenotypic information from the EMR and, and cross-reference that with, um, with the genotype. So I know that's a ways off, but that's, that's the wish list. I was gonna say the same thing because, you know, to do research, we need to be able to pull data from the EMR and some of our most crucial data, our genetic testing results are this PDF in the media tab that's not searchable. Um, so, I mean, our notes help, you know, help with that a little bit, but uh, also for patient access, you know, patients can see everything in our, in our EMR now, except sometimes their genetic test results just, you know, looks like this is back. And, and so, you know, it'd be nice if they could see the report, we send it to them, but it'd, it'd be nice if it was a little bit more integrated. Anything on your side, Dr. Pena? I'm pedigree. So I think that um, uh, right now, the way that we're we're um, putting pedigrees in the EMR is pretty rudimentary, and um, it just there's there's no way to um, update pedigrees electronically, which would be really helpful. And I think about that particularly from the point of view of X-linked disorders, when you discover one last name, maybe two last names, and then you have a whole um, intertwined family that you're treating. Yeah. And I definitely know Phenotips offers that their, their pedigree builder is just very easy. And, and the way it integrates into, um, EHRs is just really great. Um, but yeah, long way to go in terms of like EMRs in general, being able to do all of what we want it to do. Um, now another question I had was, how the U.S. compares to other countries? Are we ahead? Are we behind? Are there other countries that are more leading the way in terms of pediatric genetics? I really like the Canadian model in which they have um, come across provinces and um, work together as a big national genetics team um, for gene discovery and phenotype um, descriptions. I think there's power in numbers, particularly when we're talking about rare disorders. I think that the model in the US just seems to be pretty predicated by insurance coverage, state coverage for states that um, do cover um, genomic testing uh, for those on uh, public health insurance. So it's just a pretty, seems like a pretty tribalized model, whereas the Canadian model, and to some extent the European model too, seems to be a lot more comprehensive. It's certainly easier in terms of universal healthcare too. I mm -hmm. think just the setup, uh, but certainly a lot we can we can learn from those models. Um, and I'll add to the list too if there's certain institutions or organizations that you guys feel are really leading the way. I think for viewers to be able to follow them on social media, see what they're doing, follow their research. Anything else to add along those lines, uh, Dr. Well, I'll just, yeah. I mean, I'll just say that, uh, you know, some genetic diseases are so rare that they just have to be international collaborations. Like the kind of doing anything, even on a national scale, is too small. So 
Um, I think we've probably all experienced this with um, using Gene Matcher. So there's a, a plug for a, an institution or an entity. Um, and uh, just, you know, finding that um, there are folks all over the world that are working on uh, making these, you know, genotype, uh, you know, gene disease correlations um, in super rare diseases and finding out really interesting things about the mechanisms of disease. But it really takes that scale of collaboration to, um, to work on, on diseases that are, you know, one in a million or one in 10 million kinds of uh, prevalence. Yeah, and certainly I know we gave a shout out earlier to rare disease organizations that are started by typically a parent or caregiver of a child that has a disorder and then pulling all these people together that have the condition and then approaching researchers and saying, hey, our end number is this, we're ready to go, we're raising money for research. Um, and I think with social media that we've seen a big change in terms of how big these groups are and just how collaborative they are and doesn't matter where they are in the world. Um, being able to collaborate in that way. Um, we do have a couple questions from the audience that we'll get to here. Um, if you guys are listening and have questions you're thinking of or something that you wanted us to dive a little deeper into that we've talked about, throw that in the Q&A box. Um, we're gonna start answering those questions. So Megda asks, are databases for genotype phenotype correlations being used or any of this helping geneticists to diagnose genetic disorders? And I think we kind of mentioned a little bit here. Um, anything else to add to that? Um, any specific resources you guys are using, especially if there are students listening that are like, okay, where should I start learning? So I, I, I can think of the BioPKU um, database for a disorder that has been around for decades. And so that's been really helpful to me because it's so comprehensive. Um, and so it's helped me, for example, for new babies with PKU to have an idea of whether if we're gonna, if, if their mutation is expected to, their mutations are expected to respond to Kuvan or not. Um, and so that's been, that's one that I use quite often. That's been really helpful. Yeah, so just to, to point out a couple resources. So um, the databases for genotype phenotype correlation are useful in both directions. So both the general population and also the population of individuals with genetic conditions. So um, ClinVar, Decipher, um, there are some um, commercial tools that use natural language processing to uh, review the literature automatically and provide you with publications that are specific to one variant. Um, all of those things can be really valuable on the on the side of uh, uh, genetic variants that have been correlated with uh, diseases. And on the flip side, nomad is is you know something that is just you know part of the water now in in genetics and uh, variant interpretation. So approaching it from both directions in terms of genotype phenotype correlations um, is is incredibly powerful, and that has brought us a long ways in the last five or 10 years in terms of uh, you know, going from a, a, a huge list of VUSs that were unresolvable to you know, actually having a, a tractable kind of uh, approach to um, uncertain variants. 
Dr. Pritchard, anything else to add to our growing list? I think I think you covered everything. We covered think, most of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's something that we we hope to have more of in the future too, because there are still many conditions where we're still counseling families like we have no idea what the genotype phenotype correlation is, uh, but we hope to. You know, certainly as as patients grow and our knowledge grows. Yeah, and I think just in general to add a couple more to the list, um, I would say the National Organizations for Rare Disorders, Rare Diseases, um, very helpful. They're based out of the U.S. Um, and they're such a great hub because a lot of organizations are listed under NORD, so N-O-R-D. Um, and oh my goodness, I just had another one in my head and I, I lost that. Um, but yeah, certainly good just to look at individual organizations as well. Um, and through NORD, that can be really helpful. Um, we have another question coming in. Could you please comment on routine use of RNA sequencing to increase diagnostic yield? Which is interesting because yesterday on our webinar, we talked about RNA sequencing in terms of the cancer side and understanding do you guys use it on the pediatric side? Yes. Okay. Dr. Pena, can you uh, speak a little more to that in terms of how you're using it when you order it? I think that um, comprehensive RNA sequencing integrated with genomic sequencing is still on the research side, but for me, it's been helpful to resolve um, variants of uncertain significance by if the testing is um, possible and the tissue requirements are um, accessible to us, then it's been helpful to get the RNA, the splice effects, for example, and then take that data back to the, um, the, the lab that performed the sequencing and just have them integrate that information into their variant classification. So we've been able to resolve some cases with the RNA sequencing data. And I imagine that might be helpful in cases where um, a biological parent is not accessible to do trio testing? Like, is could that well, be helpful? Usually how it's helpful is if um, it's, a, it's expected to be a splice defect. Um, and so the testing um, is a little bit more involved because um, the lab that performs the testing needs to tell us, um, you need to take into consideration um, how the gene is expressed and if the transcripts are expressed. And so if it's a CNS, a central nervous system gene, well, nobody's gonna be having a brain biopsy anytime soon, but if the transcript is exp expect expressed in blood, or even if um, we have upcoming surgery and there's um, a fibroblast expression, then we could offer the testing in those scenarios. Okay. Yes. That's a good point. Your sample needs to be expressed. Uh, Dr. Larson. Yeah, I was going to, just to add to that. Um, I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's definitely a technology that, that does have use cases for sure. Um, but we have to be very careful because there are so many additional variables, like not only the tissue, but also the age. So, um, you know, as I was, uh, listening to a talk last week about, uh, SCN2A as a cause of autism, and there's there's two different uh, transcripts for the gene. So there's one that's expressed prenatally, and then one that's expressed postnatally. So there are different mutations that might affect the prenatal um, transcript, but not the postnatal transcript. So then, if you're doing RNA sequencing for the postnatal transcript, you you might have a false interpretation of what the results mean if the mutation is actually relevant for the prenatal transcript. So there's just a, a lot more complexity and a lot more variables that we have to take into account. 
Um, certainly, like, you know, for a gene that has a, um, a single transcript that's reliably expressed in fibroblasts or blood cells, like that, that's a great use case um, for resolving uh, uh, VUSs that impact splicing. Um, the other slightly different spin on this, so um, there's a, a test that I use sometimes, which is um, interferon expression profiling. So we're actually using the levels of expression of, um, so, so we're using quantitative RNA as the functional validation for a mutation in a different gene. Um, so that's that's another potential use case, um, but yeah, I mean, I, but I think it will be you know the uh, whole genome sequencing is so kind of all purpose, and we we kind of get used to applying that in a, a very similar way. But it's really a different mindset that we need to be in to um, make sure that we're using RNA sequencing appropriately. Yeah, much much trickier than I first thought it was. <laughs> Um, and we have another question coming in. How has the support from government research programs been on rare disease research? Um, so example, we mentioned all of us, NIH, um, NSTAS, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, how has this played a role um, as opposed to private research? Got to put our I mean, thinking caps on for this one. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Pena. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, the Undiagnosed Disease Network has been just- That the was the one I was trying to think of earlier. That's it. The okay. most salient example of um, when we dedicate resources and um, uh, when we coalesce around the thought of um, new genomic diagnoses and characterization of disorders, then it can be a roaring success really just in the years that since the uh, undiagnosed diseases program started at the NIH and then expanded as the undiagnosed diseases network, um, just uh, just the sheer volume of publications that they have had as a testament to their success. Um, I think, I mean, I think it just um, uh, provides evidence of how helpful um, the technology has been to our patients. Anything else to add to that one? I think we're kind of moving into treatments, though. I think that's, you know, many families are almost expecting that um, a diagnosis is pretty straightforward these days with the technology, if we take away insurance coverage and all the availability. So the diagnosis might be easier. It's the treatment part that's becoming more critical. Yeah. And Dr. Larson? Well, I was going to say, so I, you know, I, I can't really speak to the answer to this question at a like systemic or societal level, but um, certainly in terms of my own experience, uh, there's been a lot of value in um, the um, federally funded um, rare disease clinical research networks, um, RDCRNs. So uh, acting as a coordinating entity and uh, linking up the resources of multiple different institutions allowing different institutions to have different specialties within the same field of rare disease and to then, um, you know, farm out a clinical trial to this institution, some basic science research to this institution, genomic testing to a third institution, and collaborate, you know, on all of those efforts to achieve more kind of forward momentum. 
And Dr. Pritchard, anything else to add on to that part of the conversation? I think it's just, you know, it's always going to be tricky in rare disease when we have potentially 20,000 disorders, you know, or several thousand disorders that we're talking about. Um, and I, I think there will still, I, I see a lot of research, a lot of our clinical trials, for example, are industry sponsored because there's just not the money for people to come up with new treatments, you know, without that kind of backing. Um, so I think it's, it's going to be a combination of, of multiple funding sources to keep us moving forward in rare disease. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. We need, we need the research dollars there so that we're able to move forward. Um, so as we're closing out here, my last question is if there's any other predictions that you have in terms of the future of the genetic testing and, and diagnostic landscape, um, something that's been on my mind is just CRISPR and how you know we're seeing developments with that, certainly in terms of sickle cell uh, disease. Any other closing thoughts? I know most of our conversation has been focused on the future, um, but anything else to mention as we close out today? I think that um, in the genetics clinic, we're pretty focused on diagnostic testing, but one area that we're not as familiar with but is moving in the public domain is predictive testing. Um, and that's an area that I think is in many ways in its infancy, just because we don't have massive um, characterizations of specific variants and um, longitudinal information on their impact over health, but it's coming. We're starting to see some requests in clinic for um, predictive testing or interpretation of tests that were done for predictive testing. Yeah, I think, you know, in an ideal world, we will be doing very broad, highly sensitive testing uh, as soon as there's any indication at all that there might be a genetic disease present. Uh, over time, we'll be chipping away at, at the problem of VUSs, both you know, from a sort of functional perspective, also a population genetics perspective, also a um, uh, you know, computational genomics and kind of AI type, type perspective. So um, in a lot of ways, the, the testing is getting more useful. It's getting cheaper. It's getting more accessible. It's getting easier to interpret. Um, and over time, it's just going to make more and more sense to be applying broad genetic testing in a wider variety of circumstances and earlier on uh, in disease processes. Um, and, you know, we will identify as we identify these diagnoses, there will be more and more reason to pursue mechanistic treatments that address these etiologies of disease. Uh, and it's kind of a, you know, a virtuous cycle, right? As we identify more diseases, there's more support for developing treatments, which then adds additional um, impetus to, to be diagnosing as many uh, people as we can. Yeah, I'll add, I, I think there's a future where we all have our genome done, you know, at some point in our lifespan in that our medicine, our doctors really personalized their, our care based on that. We're not there yet. And I think we're not ready for some of the ethical complications that will arise when we get to that point. Um, but I, th I think that's, that's where things are headed is people are going to want to know what is in their DNA and what that means for their future and how to stay healthy. Yeah, certainly. And I think as coming full circle, as we started saying, we need a lot more people working in genetics to be able to give all of that data back and analyze all of that data, because at some point we will be. 
Um, I don't know if it will be our generation or the next generation, but um, I think that that is in the future, but all, you know, a lot to look forward to as we're growing in genetics. And, you know, I think we mentioned, and Dr. Larson a lot will mention like the last five, 10 years, it's like, think about the next five to 10 years and just how much things are going to change. Um, and I think it's a really exciting time to be either a student in genetics or working in genetics. And I just want to thank all of you for contributing such valuable information today. Um, I learned so much coming from the prenatal perspective, as Dr. Pena was saying, like, I don't know too much about the pediatric side. So um, it really was a pleasure just to learn much more about your area of genetics and seems like our viewers, you know, learned a lot from the session. So really, really want to thank each of you for taking your time and donating that today. Um, and for viewers, you'll see a feedback link in your browser once this webinar ends. Um, it's also going to be emailed to you. So if you're rushing to your next meeting, no worries, we're going to email that to you. But please take a minute to fill it out. We really appreciate knowing how this session was for you. We also really appreciate learning what topics you want to hear us cover in the future, what questions you have. Um, if you want to stream this webinar again, because there's just so much information in it um, and you really want to soak it all in, you can go to phenotypes.com, click the resources tab, and then the speaker series is going to pop up on the drop down menu. Um, and we have all of our installments on there. So again, that's phenotypes.com. And recently, the Phenotypes Speaker Series has become a podcast. So if you are an avid podcast listener like me, you can search that on your podcast players, Apple, Spotify, all of that, as well as my show, DNA Today. Um, but stay tuned for future webinars. Uh, we're very excited to keep bringing you new speakers to join. Um, and thank you, everyone, that's sounding off there in the Q&A box and the chat. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, you know, we really enjoy connecting with all of you, um, especially international. I think it's really cool to just be able to connect globally um, as one genetics uh, professional and everything. So thank you so much. Um, and we will see you for the next webinar.